0: I love the competition that games bring. I love the laughter around a board game. I love the challenge of winning in that game. But the thing that I think I enjoy most about a game is this reminder that um, time is going to run out. Someone's going to get to 10 points first. Someone's going to kind of beat you. And that kind of timer at the end heightens what you are uh, willing to do to win. My Family gets together this afternoon for a big Easter dinner. It's been four years since we've all been together. and We're looking forward to that. But probably around 6 o'clock tonight, uh, we'll crack out the Settlers of Catan board. And it's weird what happens when you play games together. My father, who loves the Lord deeply, well into his 70s, when it comes to even with his grandkids, he is not above cheating to beat his grandkids. Um, And my mom would say, like, you know, be sure your sins will find you out and, like, so dad, like online this morning, I'm just like, you cheat in the game. And, and the pressure that it comes when we get to eight or nine, my brother David has this weird ability to, to control the whole room and make people do deals with him where, get this, they know that they're going to lose the moment they do the deal with him and they do it anyway. It drives me bananas. But I love the pressure that a board game kind of brings out. Every game, no matter what it is, there's kind of a time limit. Um, in baseball, it's nine innings, hockey, it's three periods, baseball, uh, basketball, football, 60 minutes, board games, there's like the hourglass that you'll flip and you'll see the time go and it kind of heightens that expectations to get it done. Um, a game years ago that we used to love to play was a game called Scategories. Have you played this game? Yes, no? Uh, and you roll the dice and all of a sudden like, there's a letter and it gives you like 15 questions that, like what's a boy's name that starts with C? What's a a favorite movie that has a villain that starts with C? And then these are easy questions, but the moment you add this sound, you become dumb. You forget everything. (laughs) And then it gets worse and worse and worse, and then it's over. And categories like, no time limit. I'm the smartest guy in the room. With a time limit, I couldn't spell my name right. It, it, It just gets so much more pressure filled when you throw in the end of a game. Um, It's curious that when we talk about Good Friday, um, the game is over for Jesus. He dies on a cross. And just like the thousands of criminals killed by the Romans before him, death has come to another human being. Death is the one thing that every person is going to deal with. And Jesus was the one person who was supposed to set things right. He was supposed to change things. I can't even begin to imagine what those first followers would have felt like watching Jesus, the Messiah, die on a cross and then participating in his burial where his body is essentially put away forever. This enemy, this final enemy of death, has won again against a person who is supposed to set things right. Every single human Pre-Jesus, every single human post-Jesus, death is the ultimate end to the game of life. And it's a problem. The scriptures call this the final or the last enemy, this thing called death. If we pause for a moment and we talk a little bit about the ideas around death and the afterlife, about the time that Jesus was living, there were four or five significant voices that shaped your understanding of what was going to happen the moment you died and then what was coming after death itself. If you were one of Plato's followers, death was the achievement of life because everything physical was bad. And when you were finally able to be set free from the physical bondage, your soul, this thing that's eternal, would go off and be you know just free of all the things that were evil connected to physicality. If you were a Roman... Death was a good thing because in your death, it transformed you into some form of God that would be remembered from that day forward. If you were a Pharisee, if you were a Jewish Pharisee, um, death is where you, a Jewish man, Jewish woman, would be rewarded for your love for the Lord for all of time. If you were a Sadducee, another religious group at that time that Jesus was living, when death arrived, you simply went into the, the grave and that's it. Like there's nothing. There's nothing beyond the physical life, so to speak. And it's in that context that we read this incredible narrative in Luke chapter 24. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and they went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told these things to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed like nonsense to them. Peter, however, got up, ran to the tomb, bending over. He saw the strips of linen lying there by themselves. In this moment, all of human history is rewritten. The rules of the game of life have been rewritten in this moment when Jesus gets up from the dead. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all the gospel writers, speak to this historical moment, this historical fact that for the first time in human history, someone has come back to life to live again, and continues on living to this very day. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of the gospel writers, speak to the fact that the final enemy, the last enemy of death, no longer wins. Mary, Peter, James, John, the other disciples, at the empty tomb, hearts would have been bursting with joy for two reasons. One, Jesus, the one who they saw die and be buried, is now living again. And two, and this is significant for you and I, Everything he says about life and death and what is to come after death, he is right. He is right. There's a great line in Colossians chapter 1 verse 18 and it reads this and we'll come back to this here in a moment. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead. That little line, firstborn among the dead. This powerfully says to a world that was just guessing, Plato, just guessing. The Romans, just guessing. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, and every other voice in the first century, just guessing about what happens at death and then after. And you could fast forward to our time and place. There are just as confusing ideas about what happens at death and what happens after death. And listen, they're all guessing. It's all made up. It's all foolishness because none of it is grounded in anything historical or true. This is what makes Christian faith so unique. It is what makes us, us. Most importantly, for the Christ follower, we now have an opportunity to live in such a way where we don't fear death itself. We don't fear the grave. We don't don't allow our lives to be shaped by that prospect. Stephen understood this to be true in his life. We've been working through this moment in Stephen's life where he is brought before the Sanhedrin the same group of people that questioned Jesus and murdered him. And Stephen knows the same thing is going to happen to him. And we'll read the text this morning. This is the final few passages that we've been working through since January. This is Stephen's kind of moment before the Sanhedrin. He says, you stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but you have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to the heavens and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand. At this they covered their ears and they yelled at the top of their voices and they all rushed at him and they drug him out into the city and they began to stone him. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he had fallen asleep and died. This moment when they rush at him and they drag him out into the city streets and they begin to stone him. I love the fact that the text says that Stephen is completely calm in the face of that moment. He is completely aware that he's going to be murdered. He is completely certain that as he delivers these words of truth, that his life is going to end. And he remains completely calm in the middle of it all. And it's possible for him and for you and for me. Because he knows what the resurrection of Jesus Christ means. Stephen knows that death is not the last and final enemy. He knows that the game isn't over when the stones fly. He knows that life doesn't end when he closes his eyes in death. He knows that the game is going to continue on. Stephen, full of the Spirit, knows two things. And this is directly from Jesus Christ, the one who has been raised from the dead. He knows these two things. The moment that he dies, he is going to go and be present with the Lord himself. The moment that he dies, he's going to be instantly present with the Lord, and there Stephen knows that he's going to wait. He's going to wait, and he's going to wait, and he's going to wait until Christ returns. And all things that are being made new again will come into full completion, where all the cosmos will be renewed. And Stephen understands, like in Jesus, his physical body will be raised to life, to be with Christ forever and ever and ever in this new world. And listen, if you're like, that sounds weird. This is Christian faith. Being nice to the elderly, that's not what makes Christian faith Christian faith. Serving others and giving money away and gathering for worship, these are not unique to Christian faith. Most religions claim some form of morality. What makes us us is that I believe like in Jesus, whenever I die, whether it's tomorrow or when I'm 97, that I'm going to go and be present with the Lord. And then I just wait. And then there'll be a day where I wake up. And when I wake up, my physical body will be back, my knees will be fine, my shoulder will be restored, and I will reign with Christ on this world when it is made new again. This is Christian faith. Everything is born out of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the moment for Stephen, and he doesn't buckle under the weight of the pressure of death because he knows what's coming for him, because it's been realized in Jesus' own physical body. The beginning of this sermon series, way back in January, we told two stories. If you don't remember them, that's fine, but if you, if you remember them, I love you. <laughs> First story is of a North Korean pastor, father, wife, two kids. He is leading a church in a place where the church isn't allowed. The government discovers this church. They discover the identities. They discover what they're doing, the pastor, the wife, and their two children. And they are brought before the whole city square. There's a large hole that's been dug in the middle. And the officials force the family into the hole. And they say to the pastor and his wife, if you will publicly renounce Jesus Christ and repent of this misdemeanor, then you and your wife will be set free. But if you persist in your superstitions, all of your family is going to be buried alive and make a decision. The children begin to express the discomfort of the moment because they're quite young. But mom and dad do not buckle under the moment. They understand who Jesus is and what's coming for them. And the mom says to her children, hush. hush. Kids, tonight we're going to have supper with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And every one of them is buried alive in that city square because they understand two things. They know that they're going to be instantly present with the Lord, and there they will wait until all things are made new again. Because what happened to Jesus is going to happen to those who know him and follow him. Second story, family living in India, late 1800s. Small rural village and her family converts to Christian faith. The villagers become very angry and they pull this family out of their home and they force them into the village square. The village chief presents them with an ultimatum very similar to the one that we've just mentioned. And they say to the father, if you and your family will recant of your superstitions, we will set you free. But if you don't, you will all die. And this story has been made into a hymn given the testimony of what the father says to the village chief as he and his family are facing death and they do not buckle under the weight and pressure of death. He says to the village chief, I have decided to follow Jesus. And with this his two children are killed in front of him. He's given another opportunity to recant. He said, I know that none of you are going to join me, but we're still going to follow Jesus. And they kill his wife in front of him. A third opportunity comes his way. He says, the cross is before me, the world is behind me, I'm not turning away now. And then he's killed. What's amazing about these two stories, they are deeply sad, don't get me wrong, but in both moments, the entire village comes to know and follow the Lord. Who who does this? There's nothing in it for them. It's the video, there's no wealth coming for this, there's no riches coming for this but they believe wholeheartedly that what happened to Jesus Christ on that first Easter morning, because Jesus says it will happen to them, they, they are willing to go into this moment. What does life look like when we live in such a way that death does not have its grip on us, where it doesn't shape us? Because if we're honest, this fear of the final enemy, it shapes a lot of our lives and we don't even realize it in one way or another. Much of our lives, this thought of death keeps us from all kinds of things. This little graphic, I am terrified to fly until I begin to remind myself of what happens if we crash. I'm going to be instantly present with the Lord, and I'm just going to wait. I remember the first time our whole family went on a trip, and my son is like, Dad, what if the plane crashes? And this is a moment where I'm like, I can either lie to him and say it's not going to, or... If it does, I can say, son, and my kids, my wife, and me, you're going to be just fine. Because instantly, you're going to be with the Lord. We get on the plane, and I pray that it doesn't happen. I want to be with the Lord, but it doesn't crash. Like, that would be a terrifying (laughs) 30 seconds. However, it shapes much of our life. I remember when Amy and I first were married, and these are the subtle ways in which the fear of death shapes us in ways that we might not see it. When we were first married, if you are under 20, this will blow your mind. Years ago, there was a newspaper that was delivered to everybody's home. (laughs) In that newspaper, this is even crazier. This was like Facebook, but like seven weeks behind. Announcements were made about wedding anniversaries, and yet you're married, and now that you're married. Well, I was unaware that there were salesmen who continually looked at this part of the newspaper. When we were first married, we thought we were like royalty. Everyone was calling us to have a meeting with us to sell us life insurance. Everyone. And it was fascinating that the salesman would always direct the dialogue to Amy. Always. And this is kind of the sales pitch. You're 21. You're newly married. What happens if your husband dies? What are you going to do? The whole thing was shaped by a fear of death. The whole thing was shaped by it. And listen, like, there's wisdom in this. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying don't take a life insurance policy, but the whole thing was framed through a fear of death. We did not buy in then, then we had children, and my heavens, fear of death is everywhere. This whole industry is driven by a fear of death. And I know that as I say this, this is a very real thing for some of you in this room. But I remember early and often reading time and time again all of the, like, is it safe for Eden and Lauren to sleep on their back or is it on their belly? Is it okay for them to have oatmeal at three months? I'm like, you're going to sleep through the night, you're going to have a whole bowl. Like, (laughs) it was just weird. And it was just all of the language was like, that they might die, that they might die. And there were many moments early in our married life with Eden where Amy was just really worked up one night because this was a deep fear that this was going to happen. And after the 17th time of of Amy kind of checking on Eden, I was like, listen, if this is going to happen, you checking on him isn't going to help. Would you go to sleep? (laughs) And I was not gentle and kind when I said it. I was frustrated and mad, and it struck her, and then I was struck after that whole kind of conversation. But there's these moments where just fear grips us in so many ways. As our parents age, we see again these same forces at work. Shaping us in one way all out of a fear of what is to come in death. So to this question that we've been working through our entire sermon series, how do we stay inside the plot? How do we live in such a way that death doesn't hold us? Well, this day matters. It's Easter Sunday morning. It's resurrection. This is how we stay inside the story. This is how we don't get lost in the plot. Because I understand what happened to death. It no longer is the victor. Hence the rhetorical questions of the author of Corinthians. Where, O death, is your sting? Where is your victory? In other words, there is none anymore. It's been swallowed up in the one who has been raised from the dead. And I no longer have to fear it. When Jesus, the second Adam, gets up from the grave, he is the firstborn of the dead. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ here this morning, listen, you might be the second person born of the dead the third person born of the dead, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth. Any man, woman, child who knows the Lord, this is what's coming for you. That which happened to Jesus, first born of the dead, I am going to take my place in the millions of people who are now reborn of the dead, and I will live again because Jesus is an example of what God is doing in his world. When Jesus, the good shepherd, gets up from the grave, He leads us through the valley of the shadow of death, and I have nothing to fear. When Jesus, God in flesh, gets up from the grave, it means ultimately that God has approved of his life. And as he looks across all the people who have died, he says, what are you doing here? You are perfect. You don't deserve this. And he raises him from the dead. And he calls him back to life. And because of this, and because of this, and you need to hear this well this morning, with the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the rearview mirror. I know this is true, and I know that many of you in this room know this is true. When I make a mistake, I have an advocate with the Father, the Righteous One, Jesus Christ. He is the atoning sacrifice for the world, not just my sins, but for everyone. Because Jesus has now been raised from the dead and lives on, I am a new creation, the old is gone and the new has come. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, I know that there is one who seeks to destroy my life. And he does a great job at ruining so many lives. But I know that there's one who comes and offers life and life to its full. It's the one who's been raised from the dead and he offers life and life to its full to the point where now life is worth living. Life is worth living. Because I understand that someone lives. There's a song about that somewhere in our history, I think. Because Jesus lives, I know that his yoke is easy and the burden is light. Because Jesus is living, that if you are weary and heavy laden and tired, that if you come to Christ, you will be filled with rest and a peace that you can't explain. Because Jesus is alive, when I'm ready to lose my life for his sake, I will find the life that I'm looking for. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead. Whenever I hear his words and by faith, I trust them and put them into practice. I become a man, a woman, a person, that my life is being built on a rock that I cannot be moved. This morning, we have several people who have made decisions of faith. And they are putting their life in faith and hope in Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite Dana and the team back. And we're going to kind of get ourselves set up because we're going to walk into a moment of celebration for the baptism a moment and we'll explain what's going to happen here in a moment, but this is a significant deal. This is kind of a reenactment of resurrection in someone's life. I'm going to invite Heather to the platform this morning. Heather is one of our individuals who's going to be baptized this morning. I would like you to welcome her to the platform and she's going to share a few words with you today.
1: My name is Heather, and I started to follow Jesus when I was attending Queen's University about 10 years ago. I felt like there was something missing, like a gaping hole in my soul that I didn't know how to fill it. And Jesus filled that crack with gratitude, self-respect, peace, and love. I want to be baptized today to proclaim to the world the change that God has already made in my heart. To celebrate the relationship I have with him, and to do so with my family, And friends who have supported me along the way. My hope in Jesus shapes my life every day. I lay down my fears, worries, and burdens for God and pick up his grace, forgiveness, and love. Um, I know some of you are already aware but for those who don't know, I was diagnosed with metastatic cancer about nine days ago. And though I do have worries and fears about that. To have the Jesus in my life, to be able to give me hope, and to constantly lay down those worries to him is the best gift that I could ever have. Thank you.